Hello, awesome people. Welcome to Embrace the Pivot. I'm Dr. C. Robinson, your host for the show. Join me as we discover what pivoting actually means and how you can embrace your pivot during life's transition. Welcome back, everyone. I know I took a week off. Uh, I needed a little break. So I hope you've had a great, I guess now two weeks since we've last been together. October is the National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I was pitched a woman who not only did she survive domestic violence, but she also was wrongfully not convicted, but wrongly accused um, of the violence, which is really, it's strange. And I was just so inspired by her strength that she was able to survive not only one horrific act of violence, but a second one, which mentally and even career-wise hindered her for a little bit. And just how she was able to pull herself out of this devastation and this horrific act that happened to her and has turned it around in order to help others, to help other victims. And it is just so, I'm speechless. Her story, when I heard it, was, I was just so moved. She's so powerful. She's so strong. And I'm so happy to have Amy Ballin on today to share her story, how she pivoted and she continues to pivot and how she is now helping others pivot. Everyone, please welcome Amy. Thank you. And I want to thank you so much for having me today as your guest. Your story, it's so touching in so many ways. Um, I would really like to start with when you were wrongfully accused, right, in the the criminal justice system. And then two, you are also a survivor of domestic violence. So if we could start with that story and then how you pivoted out and how now you are helping others in that similar situation, I'd appreciate it. That would be great. I have quite a story. So my domestic violence incident was actually one night of domestic violence, which really changed my life completely. It's just amazing when you think about how one night can really make such a difference. The night of my incident, I was actually getting divorced. My former husband had moved out of our condo and had not moved into his new home yet. He essentially attacked me. And, you know, having never been attacked before and and at 49 years old, not Uh. ever experiencing domestic violence, I just, what do you do when you're attacked? I mean, I ran out of our condo. I was in pajamas and no shoes on. And, and, you know, we were living in a like I said, a condo, I went downstairs to the concierge and said, you need to call the police. I've just been attacked. So as I was on the phone with the police at the time, completely unaware of the laws that had been implemented with the Violence Against Women Act, I called the cops. And while I was on the phone, I hear this ruckus behind me and I hear my ex-husband yell, did she call the police? And I should add, my ex-husband is a former cop. And oh. <laughs> The concierge says yes, 
And he says, good, call an ambulance because she stabbed me with a knife. <gasps> and all I remember was saying to the 911, oh, my God, he stabbed himself. Oh, my God, somebody has to get the knife. And so the, the operator says, well, how do you know he stabbed himself? And I said, because I didn't stab him and, and, and I'm standing downstairs. So there was almost this automatic like, suspicion, which was bizarre. But as I stood on the phone with the 911 caller, my ex-husband proceeded to go outside to the porch of share and meet the police. And automatically, uh-huh. he told them he was a former officer of the law. And then I stabbed him with a knife. And it's so surreal when I look back on it. I sat in the lobby and never in a million years did I think that phone call would lead to a wrongful arrest, a wrongful charge, and turning a victim into what is you know, called a predator. And so, do you think that do you think that they never questioned that from the beginning because he was a former officer? You know, that's a good question. I think it's a couple of things. I would say that the, the wound that he had, he literally, if you can imagine putting your arm up, straight up, like you're like, say a dog's going to attack your arm, you're wearing one of those covers. Well, imagine putting your arm straight up, taking a knife and slitting it right down the middle of your arm. So it was a straight cut. And the slice was when I finally saw the pictures, you know, months later with my criminal lawyer, it was so deep that because it was a uh, deadly weapon, I think that they automatically had to arrest me. And my ex-husband knew this going, you know, obviously when I ran out of the condo, he knew that one of us would get arrested and using a deadly weapon, even though I had bruises that night on my knees, automatically I would be the one arrested. Wow. That's so disheartening. It's unfortunately very common and it is disheartening. You know, I, I, it was just, the whole thing was just surreal. I remember they took me upstairs to police, you know, and I'm thinking that they're going to talk to me. And I walked in the condo and literally it looked like there was a murder scene there. And I could, I can remember scanning my closet and the officer saying, I was wearing a diamond bracelet. She said, you need to take that off. And I, I said, why? Completely not thinking I'm getting arrested. She says, because where you're going, you don't want to wear this. And I'm like, well, where am I going? She said, you're going to jail. Wow. So, oh, so many questions right now going through my mind. So, so you get arrested and then what was that like for you? I, you know, I think when trauma happens, you know, our, some of us just kind of go into a, a space where you've got to process it while it's happening. And, I, and when she said those words to me, I almost went into like this, you know, automatic pilot of just doing whatever they told me to do. You know, because I have to be a good citizen, right? So it, it was beyond devastating. You know, I, he had taken my phone and threw it off the balcony. And I had said to the officers, you have to get the phone. He smashed it. It's, and they, my former business partner actually showed up to the scene. And they handed her a flashlight and told her to go outside and look for it. So that should give you an indication of 
how they automatically was, you know, he's a former officer and we're not going to really investigate this and took me off to jail. And when I got out of jail uh, the next day, I was charged with a second degree felony assault with a deadly weapon, which is one under manslaughter. And in the state of Florida, it's a 15 year minimum mandatory sentence if convicted. How, so at this point, how, what was your mindset like? How did you not crumble? Like, how did you go into survivor mode? That is something that I, I, I think I was so indignant by what had transpired, having never been involved with the criminal justice system, having sold real estate and been in real estate development for 20 years and raised two kids. I mean, it was so out of my realm of reality that I just automatically was like, well, you know what? I just I have to hire the best attorney. And, you know, when I hired my lawyer, I said to him, and this, again, it goes back to being really naive. I said, there's two things I want. One, you can never offer me a plea. I will not take a plea. And that's when he said, and he realized this is one under manslaughter. And I said, you realize I've never been arrested for anything in my life, 49 years old. And I just, you know, I, I think what happened, I started my own company. And I literally had just been awarded my first project. It was a, a $150 million project. And that day that I was in jail, I was actually supposed to be in a meeting to pitch for another like $400 oh. million project. Oh, yeah. And it was for the four seasons, actually. And um, somebody reached out to me and they're like, they know that I would never not show up for a meeting. And they're like, something has got to have happened to her. And, you know, I had to make a lot of decisions very quickly. And when I, when I finally made the decision that I had to come clean, part of the reason I had to come out and tell my clients, you know, everybody said, don't do that. When I was in jail, I should note that my former husband had spyware on everything I owned. So while I was in jail, my mugshot and why I was arrested was sent to every person, all 2,000 people that I had in my LinkedIn. Oh. So my, my mugshot was disseminated. And so when you ask how I was able to turn that, I, I had to very quickly decide how I was going to handle this. And I'm a true believer that people with nothing to hide, hide nothing. But on the flip side, as you know, sometimes when you're accused of doing something, we go overboard in trying to say, no, 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 I didn't do it. Almost to the point where people really question, like, are they telling mm-hmm. the truth or are they not telling the truth? And I thought, you know, the only way that I'm going to be able to overcome this is by standing in my power as much as I possibly can, given the circumstances, do what I could to be proactive, be successful in the face of adversity with my own with my own business and be very transparent only with the people that I felt needed to know, like my clients who I had to go to and say, by the way, you know, I missed our marketing meeting, not because um, I had an emergency, but um, I got wrongfully arrested and I'm accused of stabbing my husband. And by the way, do you want to keep me on as your exclusive sales and marketing company? And, you know, it worked to my favor because he said, you know, telling me what happened to you tells me all I need to know about you and the kind of, character that you have but it was oh. it was devastating yeah 
Okay. So now you're in it. You tell your clients <laughs> that this is what's happening. And I, right now I'm just in disbelief because I'm trying to be in your shoes for a moment to see how, like, how would I react? What would I do in this situation? And oh my goodness, what you went through. I just want to give you a hug right now. Um, so Aww. after, so after you, you know, you tell your clients you're in it, then what was the process for you to prove your innocence? Oh, it was painful. <laughs> it was a painful process. You know, it's a he said, she said. So just for context, I mean, I'm so, I'm so naive that after I hired my lawyer, um, he's a criminal lawyer that actually represents the, the same officers that arrested me wrongfully. But um, I went home and I found out that, you know, when I got my condo back, because I was, there was a restraining order, which is so un unbelievable against me from my ex-husband. I had to wait for him to leave. And, um, you know, he played the victim. This is a man who's six feet tall, formal, formerly trained professional officer. And I'm five four. Our, our weight difference is probably a hundred pounds. But, um, you know, I, I basically, like, when I got my place back, I found out that I'd spyware my computer, which I had no idea, which was really unnerving for me. But I also went into my closet and found the pajamas that I wore, and they're in the crime scene photos the night of the incident, which the police never took, because, of course, there was no blood on that, on my pajamas, you know, and if you saw his cut, there, you know, any person with a brain would have said there's no way that she could have stabbed him, not gotten one drop of blood on her. Um, so I kissed the nightshirt, I brought the computer, and then I found some glass that was on the bedside table from where he destroyed the phone. And I come walking into my lawyer's office with all my evidence in hand, and, and he's, as I said, a former officer. He was a former officer as well, and he looks up at me, and he says, Amy, what do you want me to do with it? And I said, it's evidence. He says, okay, did the police take it? I said, well, no, but that's, that's why I'm giving it to you. There's no blood on my nightshirt. Here's, you know, the computer. And he says, if the police didn't take it, Amy, then it's not evidence. So, you know, I tried to kind of be my own advocate. But what really was a pivotal thing in our situation was I was home one weekend. So I worked very hard and I made sure that I was all over magazines and in the news and you know, my lawyer said, be under the radar. And I was like, there's no way I, I've been doing what I do for 20 years. I'm not going to let this destroy me. Um, I'm going to have to get through it. But I called my lawyer and I said, you know what? All I have is my truth. So I'd like to take a polygraph before you depose my ex-husband. And I will say that taking that polygraph, although people say polygraphs don't mean anything, that's not true because 16 months later after going to court every month for calendar call and then I'd go to a, you know, marketing meeting where I'm overseeing, you know, a million dollar marketing budget and telling the developer where we're going to put the money. I mean, it was just such a surreal existence. But after 16 months of going through this, the state actually requested a copy of the polygraph and the state concurred that I, in fact, did not stab my husband. So they no process my case, which is unheard of, usually in a domestic violence incident, especially with a second-degree felony, like one under manslaughter, but they no process it because the state concurred I was 
I didn't do this crime I was accused of. But now what happens to your ex-husband? I'm still trying to figure that one out. Um, it, was <laughs> oh, an election, it, was an, it was an election year, and um, I was invited to somebody's house about a week after the no-prof um, that, the, that the state gave me. And at this point, I'm going to go through an expungement. And I went to a fundraiser for the state attorney who had been the state attorney in Fort Lauderdale, I think since 1970-something. Um, and I meet him at this fundraiser. He comes up to me and he's like, oh, thank you for being here. If I can help you, let me know. And I say to him, well, as a matter of fact, you can. And he's like, okay, what, what can I help you with? Never expecting what would come out of my mouth. And I said, well, I have this case. And, it, you know, it was a domestic violence incident. And he says, well, what's, what's the situation now? I said, well, it's got no cause. And he said, oh, you're fine then. I said, no, 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 no. I'm the one who got arrested. I'm the one who called the police. And I was the victim. So, no, it's not over. And his face went white. And I, he, he did make an appointment with me and the assistant state attorney where I walked in with all my evidence, like I got the fingerprint report, it only had one latent fingerprint, I brought in my 911 call, I brought in the pictures, I brought in everything that I had. And the state attorney looked at me and she said, does your lawyer know you're here? And I was like perplexed, I'm, why is she asking me this question? And I said, no, he doesn't know. She says, you need to go tell your lawyer you're here. So I promptly called my lawyer and, and he said, come on over and I sit down and he looks at me and he says, all right, so now what are you doing, Amy? Because I should add during the pendency of the trial, just through some friends, 2020 actually wanted to film the courtroom. And I had to ask my lawyer if we could do that. Now, again, he, he represents the cops as well. So that wouldn't have bode well for them. And he says, Amy, what part of under the radar did you not get? So at this point, he's like, okay, now what's she doing? So I say to him, he, I said, well, I, I went to the state attorney's office. I want them to now press charges against my ex-husband. And he looks at me kind of with his head tilted. And he says, you do know that I'm on the board to reelect the state attorney, don't you? And that was my, what we call an oh. aha moment where it's like you're either going to play in the sandbox or you're going to stand outside and throw the sand and, you know, risk getting, you know, scolded and in trouble. And I said, well, I have to learn how to play in the sandbox. So I turned that whole incident, you know, and I had to let go of the fact that my ex-husband would not be charged. Um, but I turned it, you know, and I, I got very involved with the Innocence Project of Florida, which is when – People are wrongfully incarcerated and they spend years in prison and they can't afford an expensive criminal lawyer and they can't afford their truth. And they eventually, sometimes through the Innocence Project, get exonerated. So when I did my, I have a book called Fabulous to Frame, which is my whole story. I, I basically, you know, did that launch and gave all the money to the Innocence Project, which by the way, my lawyer was on the on the chair. He was a chairman of the board of the Innocence Project. So <laughs> I had to, I had to turn it into something really positive. And by the way, I do feel passionate about that one. Um, mm -hmm. But then I had another fight right after that, which I, I'm not sure if you know about. No, no, go ahead. Oh, 
Okay, so the case got expunged, which is great. Unfortunately, a mugshot tells a different story. So while your case may show that you don't have a record, you never were arrested, and everything is honky-dory, there's a mugshot online. And I, I had taken a job to prove in my new story that I could be honest and get a job doing the same thing I had done. And I took a job in another uh, city. Well, I also had my cousin serve with civil papers, which was not very smart. And all of a sudden, the mugshot started going back up online. So when I moved to this new county to take this vice president position, and I, a very conservative company, when I saw the mugshots going up and I knew where they were coming from, I was like, oh, my gosh, I, this is not good. Well, it turns out the day I got there, they rescinded the offer. So now I went on a whole new plight to get mugshots down. And I was introduced to a cyber-stalking expert at the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence, which at the time was the largest domestic violence organization in the United States, most heavily funded. And um, I was preyed on by somebody who worked there, and to cover up the behavior, went into all my devices and cyber-stalked me. And I ended up placing a landmark lawsuit against this organization um, and in response to the, the lawsuit, they victim-blamed me. This is an organization meant to help domestic violence women. And I was like, you know, I'm a grown woman, if I, and I'm a mother with a child. And I thought, you know, if this is my child, how would I want my child to be handled? Would I want my child to be victim-blamed? Because we so often hear about that. Right. And I, I said, absolutely not. So through a friend, there was an article that got put into the Miami Herald, and consequently, um, it opened up some questions about the organization, and the organization actually, right in March, ended up being dismantled and put into receivership by the state of Florida. So as a result of my going to the Miami Herald with my story, another story came out, and um, which was a blessing. It, it, they, we found out that the president had stolen $7.5 million of taxpayer money that was for domestic violence victims. And I actually went up to Tallahassee. I testified twice to the House of Representatives. And I have to tell you, you know, I believe everything leads you to something in life. I really believe that. And I have to say that somehow what happened to me was meant to lead me to something bigger and make an impact in something so much bigger than me. And, and that really is the way that I've looked at everything that I've gone through. So I've been able to, to speak. I've been able to um, be involved in rallies with domestic violence, be on podcasts like yours, and talk about important things like officer-involved domestic violence or um, what happens when you're wrongfully arrested? You know, you don't have the money to pay for a lawyer. And now we have an organization that is completely out of statute, which was a huge shakeup right before COVID. So and that was, that's, a, that's amazing how your story led to the discovery of $7.5 million in taxpayers' money being stolen and not even going to the organization. And then you just really have to wonder how many other agencies out there are like that 
who blame victims and steal the money. That's, that's crazy. And if it wasn't for your story, as horrific as it was, it, this would have never been uncovered. That's incredible. Yeah. Now, when I put the lawsuit against them, everybody asked me, they said, Amy, are you absolutely out of your mind? I mean, haven't you fought enough? And, you know, I said, if I don't do this for other women, and I, and I should I should backtrack a little bit. I did, I did um, receive a, an award. It was called the People of Distinction Award. And I did speak at, at this, um, the, they had a big event. It was the first time I spoke publicly about what I went through. This was before I went through the second thing. And I can tell you when I shared my story and said, look, you know, you have no shame when you're a victim, but we are meant to feel shameful when something bad happens to us. And we need to do a paradigm shift in the way we look at it because there's no shame in being a victim and standing in your truth and saying, you know, I, I got accused of doing this, but I didn't do this. And eventually it will come out, which it did. Um, and I cannot tell you how many women, women of all ages, came and waited in line. And there were people from all different kinds of, you know, businesses that were honored at this event waited to talk to me and and said thank you so much i this one woman is about seven years old she said thank you so much she said i had the same thing happen to me and i was so ashamed of it that i never told anybody and it broke my heart that people carry around this guilt that is not their guilt to to, to own it's just not so when i had the incident with the coalition and, you know, they victim blamed me. It was another pivotal moment for me where I said, you know, are you going to let this silently go and, 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 and kind of cower? Or are you going to stand up for all the people that are voices who cannot use their voice because they've either been silenced, you know, scared into silence, or they have been ignored? Many people tried to get this organization investigated prior to my going to the Miami Herald and prior to the journalists, you know, researching this organization. Um, but it was just, it was just, you know what, this is not okay. Something has to change. And you brought up a great point. While this is happening and articles were being written in the Miami Herald and people were writing things about me, there was a I think an article in Miami Herald, my face was on it. It said, you know, client testifies to the House of Representatives. But I had women from all over the country, not only employees, but victims as well, who had either been turned down or had been squeezed out of the organizations because they would not comply with behaviors that, you know, they didn't agree with, where they said, look, you know, electricity is being turned off but you're buying pencils for the main office for $8 a pencil. What about paying for the, the electricity where the victims are going to go? So I think it's, just, it's really a systemic problem, which is something that you said, you know, how many other people are there? And I think yeah. if we dig, you know, we'll find out. Oh, you know, there are so many questions right now going through my <laughs> mind. Um, <laughs> it, and it's just, how you were able to turn this extremely negative experience into a positive one. I give you a lot of credit and I applaud you. Um, there, I, I think there are people who would just crumble under those circumstances. So how were you able 
to just pick yourself up and just keep going. And it seems like no matter what was thrown at you, you just kept going. And especially when um, they rescinded the offer for you at that new job, what did you do then? How were you able to not let it hinder your momentum moving forward? Well, I have to say that, you know, in all, in all honesty, there was heaviness. It, it actually happened two days before Christmas. I moved and it's, it's about three hours away from where I live and where I know everybody. And I, 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 I did break down and it was very difficult. I, I don't want to make it sound like it was such an easy thing. It was a very, very difficult thing. And I had to really compose myself think about what it was that I wanted to do to make a difference. And I said, you know, I, if I, if I really believe everything happens for a reason, there's a reason that this happened. And maybe it's to give me the year that I need to write my book and share my story. And it also gave me the opportunity to realize that even with an expunged record, that the mugshot remaining online will tell a different story. So it gave me the opportunity to deal with trying to do what I could to control that and, and get the, the mug shot down. But it was it was very, very challenging. And I, I just knew that I would have to take that year kind of, you know, I'd gone, I'd been going so fast during the first incident, which was traumatic with my ex-husband, domestic violence is just, you know, to go through an experience like that is just, it's a harrowing experience, especially when you've never experienced something like that and even if you have it's still a harrowing experience I should say but I had to I had to have purpose and so I I took that and I said you know it's time to write my book and that's what I did so I took the year and I wrote the book and that's when I went through my whole process of trying to get mug shots down and all the things I could do and I mean I spent hours and days and uh, I mean I went through so much with that mug shot and um, right now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to turn that into something and dealing with hopefully what will be our current, our new state representative in the district I live in. And we've already talked about the officer involved domestic violence and violence against women act and how some of those laws need to change in the mandatory arrest case. But I, I had no choice. You know, I, I did fall apart quite a few, a few times and, I just had to keep saying to myself, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through it. It's going to, it, it's it, something good has got to come from this or you've been through all this for nothing. And it's not an easy thing. And I will say I had a great therapist and <laughs> a great, uh-huh. a great, great, great therapist, you know, yeah. a, great group of, a great group of friends. And um, I think being alone for that year by myself, you know, not knowing people in, I was living in Sarasota from Fort Lauderdale I think that helped a lot too. So it, it, that's pretty much, I'd say how I got through it. And so coming from a marketing background and a sales background was, you had mentioned that you knew that your, your online story was going to be different than the reality that you were living in. But with that foundation and that background, were you able 
to say, let me take control over the narrative? Like, did that marketing mindset kick in at all so that you could have, like, tell a different story and address the mugshot? So that story, and that's such, such a good question because I did struggle with what can I do? And I really realized, you know, and like you said, I'm in marketing and sales. So I've always been able to, you know, control the narrative, if you will. That's what I've been taught to do for all the years I've been doing real estate development, sales and marketing. In this incident, and it was the hardest lesson I learned, I think, through the whole thing. I had to learn what I could not control. And I could not control the narrative of the story that other people were sending to their friends or, or texting to developers. I, it came back to me that many, and I found out that my mugshot, as I said, had been disseminated and, you know, it, it just went like wildfire. And just like I said to you, inherently, we want to defend ourselves. I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to, you know, call these people that I heard were sending the mugshots around and saying, what happened to Amy Ballon? I had just been vice president of Sotheby's for development, you know, and now all of a sudden you're getting a mugshot saying I stabbed my husband. It, it was just beyond crazy. And I really wanted to do that. But what I, I had to finally learn, and it was the hardest thing in the world, that I had to accept that which I could not change. I could only change that narrative when the story had an ending. And that took 16 months. And I could only change the narrative during that 16 months if I did everything in my power to succeed in the face of adversity. And um, I had a great PR firm. And um, I went into a market in real estate where, like, nobody had ever been. Nobody had built anything in 10 years. So I had the cards stacked against me. And everything I was doing, actually, I decided, you know, I look back and I'm like, my gosh, did I have anything in my favor? But because of sheer determination and I think I took that energy and that anger and that helplessness and said, well, if I can do something, I'm going to make this successful. And as I said, I had a great PR firm, a great marketing company, developers spend the money and, and, and created success during that 16 months. Although I will say every day I went home, I'd cry. I would, I would wonder, am I going to go to jail? Because if we went to trial, I was told that my chances, you know, 3% of all people do not take a plea. The, the, the cards are stacked against you. And I was so naive that I didn't know any different. I just, this wasn't, you know, it was just beyond my comprehension. I was very naive and maybe that worked in my favor. But when I was able to control the narrative after the null process, although the, the, you know, the mugshot was there, that's when I wrote the book. And that's when I said, okay, now it's time for me to tell the real story. Oh. And that's what I did. And I went into another story. <laughs> <laughs> One wasn't enough. <laughs> uh, uh. And isn't it supposed to be you're innocent until proven guilty? And now it's really guilty until proven innocent. It's crazy. It, it is. It is absolutely a harrowing beyond words experience because you truly are guilty until proven innocent, which is why I think that our, you know, from a, from a, I guess, 
a systematic issue. I think that you can't put mug shots online. I mean, there's lots of different theories about why they do it. But when you're dealing with an innocent person, a mugshot can ruin their life. And if you don't right. have money to pay for it, you know, it, it's a horrible thing. It's a stigma that, that will remain with you. I mean, I can remember I, I was when I was writing the book, I wanted to make sure that I didn't do anything to get myself in trouble and slander or whatever to shame anybody. And the, the, the entertainment lawyer was out of California. And they did a background check because I wasn't a corporation. I was a sole proprietor, and they did the background check. And I called her. It's like three weeks later. I said, "Well, are you guys? Am I? Are you going to be my lawyers representing me? What's going on?" She said, "Well, I got a call from HR, and they asked me if I knew that you had been arrested and charged with a second degree felony. This is a year after my case got expunged." And I said, uh. "How did that happen?" Well, you've heard of companies like Lexus, Lexus Nexus. They pull yeah. background checks. Well, all that yeah. information every day is put into a huge database. So even if you're expunged, it still shows up. So it's uh, it, it's unfortunate that our system is like that. There should be caveats of all types. But, you know, it's, it, I guess you should have to learn to embrace, again, that which you cannot change and say, what can I do with what I cannot change to make a difference? So through your experience and the other individuals that you've met throughout this journey, what is, and I know that there's many, but what is like the top most urgent bill or law or policy that needs to be changed to help domestic violence victims? Good questions. This, this has been uh, National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, October. I've, I've had the opportunity to be uh, featured on some podcasts and sat in and listened on in others. The biggest problem I'm seeing right now, and I just watched a judge, a woman who's a running for state attorney in, I think, Michigan, and they were talking about how, you know, a lot of domestic violence cases end up in family courts. But they're not family court issues. They're criminal issues. But because it's a husband and wife, the perception for some reason is still that it's not criminal. It's still civil. Um, and what I've heard is a lot of women, you know, the hardest time when you're in a domestic violence incident is when you're leaving. And the one woman who hosted it, she, um, she actually had a husband who got arrested for beating her up and tried hiring a hitman to kill her five different times. She oh. went to the police. She went to the police five different times and nobody paid attention. Literally nobody paid attention until she went to the media. And that's when the state attorney, the attorney general got involved. And it also ended up on a surviving evil, I think. But, that is the biggest problem, I think. The biggest thing, the biggest bill that needs to be changed is we need people to listen to the women's stories. And there needs to be something in place to help protect those, and I, not just women, men as well, but to protect victims of domestic violence that have a spouse who, you know, has guns and they're threatening to kill you and take those guns away. Protect that victim. Um, 
and that goes along with, uh, in the same vein, a a violent registry um, for for women who are single, just like we have, you know, for pedophiles, we have a, a registry, right? If you're a sex mm-hmm. offender, you have a, there's a registry. You can see where there's a sex offender in every neighborhood, right? So you have a, a population of vulnerable women and men. But if somebody's been arrested, I have another friend who has a daughter and a, um, a granddaughter who were murdered by a boyfriend who had a previous arrest for, for abusing a child. And she didn't have that information. So there's a law that they're looking to pass, unfortunately, state by state, they need to do it federally, that would allow for somebody to be able to look in a registry and see if somebody has been arrested for domestic violence if somebody has been arrested for any kind of violence. So as a as a person, when you start dating, or like when you move in a neighborhood, you can see right. who's sex offender. So yeah. I think that on a, on a big scale, aside from the civil courts and the criminal courts and the family courts and whatnot, paying attention, I think that the biggest thing is to have a violent offender registry across the nation for the most vulnerable women that is, you know, women of domestic violence. So that's and, probably what I would. And if people wanted to support this, what like what are the steps that they can take, you know, to be a part of it in changing these laws and policies? You know, it's all very um, obviously political. Um, it's through legislature. I would recommend getting in touch with your local state rep or your local state senator. Um, to propose a bill like that. There are some bills around the country, but I think getting involved in, in dealing with some domestic violence organizations or, or people, there's many people online that have got groups where they're trying, Tina's Law, Brittany's Law, I could give you a plethora of them where they're trying to get this implemented. So I would say, you know, call your state representative and, you know, say this is so, so important. I mean, there's just, you're reading it in the news all the time, unfortunately, with these situations that people, you know, homicide, uh, suicide, or yeah. it just, you know. Yeah. How has this, you know, incident and this experience affected your children? You know, um, it was very, it was, well, the first incident I, it was very difficult. My children loved this man. And my friends loved this man. Um, and and I think both of my kids were just, you know, they felt like this man was going to protect their mother for the rest of her life. It's not their father, obviously, you know, because it, it, their father, was many years ago, this is my second marriage. My kids had a very tough time understanding how somebody they trust so much could do something so vile. Um, it affected them a lot. But they got, they did get through it. You know, I had to be strong for them. So they saw me being strong. They, they were like, okay, mom's going to be okay. The second incident that happened, they were very, they were my champions. They really, really were. And it was so amazing how much support they gave me. And, and they were like, mom, you're, you're, kicking ass you know <laughs> taking stuff down you know mom's mom's going to you know she's running a 300 million dollar project and but now she's going up to the state you know capital and testifying and they they've been 
spectacular. They've, they've learned a lot. And I think it's allowed them to find their own voices about certain things they're passionate about. So it was hard. The first one was very hard. This one, the second one, they're like, wow, look what you did. Yeah. <laughs> Every, everybody was kind of like shaking their head saying, how did that happen? Yeah. How, how have you evolved as a leader? How have I evolved as a leader? I, I think just by sharing my story, by, as I said, standing in my truth, by not allowing, you know, myself to get bullied and standing up for myself and for other women. And I think that has been just by sheer action. It has been by, you know, leading by example of what and how, you know, you should manage things. You know, it's very easy to crumble under all these different situations. But I I was like, you know, I'm not going to get knocked down or deterred. There, this is, there's too many people reaching out to me saying, this happened to me and this happened to me. And I, I tried to get somebody to look and listen. Nobody would. That's painful. So I think that's how I've been able to evolve as a leader in this. Um, again, I still do my real estate development and I'm still doing great with that, but this is a whole different, you know, side of my life that has really allowed me to grow, I think, a lot as a person. And I didn't ask for it, but I certainly have embraced it once I had to accept it. So if someone came to you stating that they were thrown into a pivot, what would be three essential steps that you would share with them so that they could succeed in this transition? First, I would say embrace the pivot. Because until you embrace that change, you're not going to be able to move forward. So that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is whatever that pivot is, understand what your what your goal is is your goal to like i had not to go to jail you know what is it that you're you need to get out of this or with the coalition to expose the wrongdoings that they had and i think you know the third thing i'd say is figure out a plan of how you're going to execute it and have a great support system but know that the best revenge or the best success in situations that you have to pivot into is knowing your own strengths and knowing that whatever you do in the face of adversity, you can always succeed and have that attitude and believe in yourself and believe in what you know to your core to be true and important. And where can my listeners find you on social media? My social media, my page got taken down after I, I put a lawsuit against the Florida Coalition oh. on, uh, on Facebook. I wonder if it had something to do with the cyber-stalking expert. But that being said, I have um, a, a, on Facebook, it's uh, Amy Ballin, um, or I also have another page on Facebook, Amy Ballin Author, um, or Domestic Violence Voices. Um, 
My website is Raising Awareness for the Innocent, which is the one I had on Facebook that got taken down, but I still do have that as an active website. So there's a few different ways that one can find me, but the easiest is probably on Facebook. Okay. Amy, thank you so much for sharing your journey with me. I think you are absolutely incredible, and thank you for all the work that you're doing to help other victims. Well, thank you so much for having me as a guest, and I've really enjoyed my time, and thank you for letting me share this very important story with your listeners. Not everyone is able to survive domestic abuse or really know where to go for help. If you or someone that you know is in danger, there's a national domestic abuse hotline that you can call, and it's one 800 799-SAFE, 1-800-799-7233. Please, I urge you to seek help or stand up for someone that you know that can't stand up for themselves right now. There is help. Please be an advocate in one way or another. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week and I will be back next Wednesday. You can follow me, Dr. C, on Instagram at Embrace the Pivot. I hope all of you embrace your pivot.